Saving lives and property with drone technology is no longer a rarity. Welcome to the FLIR Delta Podcast, where we bring in leaders within the drone community and discuss their insights, perspectives, and unique journeys through the unmanned industry. I'm your host, Randall Warnes. In this episode, I sit down with Brendan Stewart, president and co-founder of AeroVisa Innovations. We speak at length about the impact drone technology is having on the public safety space. All right, Brendan, it's good to sit down with you and chat a little bit about your experience in the drone industry. Yeah, um, man. So it's great to have you. I think it's a long time coming. Great to be here, my man. So before we get started talking about drones, tell a little bit about who Brendan is outside of the drone industry. Asleep. <laughs> no, really. So you get some. Barely. I mean, the, the, the drone industry is kind of all-consuming. I am an aviation nerd, so this is kind of my, my focus and my passion. I've been a drone guy for many years. I've been flying drones about 10 years. I'm also an aviation guy, right? I'm a real aviation geek, and I kind of got into it backwards. I started flying drones first, then got into airplanes. I'm active in my local civil air patrol squadron, so I do a lot of service work there as well. Beyond that, you know, I'm a motorcycle guy and like tinkering and working on stuff and, you know, always got a project going on. Cool. So I know that you have crazy number of flight hours, <laughs> right? Yeah. So what, how did you accumulate that many flight hours? Why were you flying? When did you start flying? All sure. of those questions. Sure. To be honest, I stopped counting after about 2,500. The way that I racked up most of those flight hours is I started early, early on in my career in prototyping and hardware development. My initial training was in electrical engineering, so before multi-rotors were really on the scene, did a lot of development with fixed wing and did a lot of development with, with some of the radio systems that, were, that went on those fixed wing aircraft, and this was way before 2012, way before the FMRA, so we were doing things that you wouldn't dream of today, right, with, with, the, with the regulation set that we have. After that, you know, the, when, when Section 333 came out kind of in, in early 2014, I was a man pilot already. And I had a great opportunity to start flying in the cinema industry doing flight services. And the cool thing about that time in the industry was it was, it was a time when we had very, very little automation, very, very little existence of standards, and an incredible amount of work and opportunity to actually go out there and fly. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, some of these opportunities because I was a, like, 18-year-old kid flying a drone that was worth... 50 grand with a red epic camera that's worth probably $60,000 and I'd be like taken out in the back of a warehouse in Chicago and given some controls and say hey familiarize yourself with this you're going to be flying it for four 12-hour days this week <laughs> right so I mean it was a very cool experience to to learn you know that way and learned a lot about the importance of airmanship learned a lot about human factors right we spent a long long time I remember a, a film shoot I did for um uh, Infinity Automotive in St. Louis, and we would drive there, you know, five hours to get from Chicago to St. Louis, and then fly for like a 12-hour day, and then wake up the next day and do it again, right? So, learned a lot about human factors, you know, got a lot of flight time in. Don't think I would do that again, right? Because there's, you know, learned a lot about duty cycle and all that, and it kind of primed me for, you know, what we're doing today, which is helping public safety get up and running, building safe, efficient, effective drone programs. And in public safety, there's kind of a challenge there, which is a lot of mission pressure, a lot of extended duty time, especially when they're flying for larger, more exigent incidents. So AeroVista being primarily focused on public safety today, was that always the mission, or did that kind of transform as you watched the industry come and go or, or looked at your skill set? So we kind of got into public safety, I wouldn't say by accident, but, but definitely by you know, the need of the community. 
we started off in flight services. You know, I leveraged some of that experience on the flight services side to try to build a flight services company. Uh, what we really quickly realized is in that early part of the industry before the standards were set, it was almost impossible to find qualified pilots, right? There are one or two nerdy guys like me around, but not a lot of folks who could really actively, you know, take the controls of an aircraft and go out and reliably produce good results, right? So what we did is we launched AeroVista Drone Academy. We partnered with NIPSTA and Glenview, which is the third largest public safety training academy in the country, just to have a place to run these classes. And, and what we really quickly realized is the majority of the people that were coming to our classes were public safety folks. And this was pre-Part 107. This was still Section 333 when we were like, okay, you know, we'll teach you how to fly drones, but now you got to go get a pilot's license to actually do this. And when that happened, we realized, okay, the, here's a huge opportunity. There's a lot of need here. We started pivoting our curriculum toward public safety. This is a time when the announcement for the Part 107 regulations was coming out. So we started a Part 107 ground school and flight school in the preceding about four months before September 30th of 2016 when, when Part 107 was released. So we kind of knew what it would look like because I had that aviation background and we were able to um, you know, build curriculum for that. So we really started there and based on that need in public safety have just really scaled from there. And we figured that you know, starting in that area, if we could build training curriculum, if we could build process, if we could build policy to do the most dangerous, most exigent life safety missions, we could then scale that out to the enterprise, right? Because you battle test it here, you can kind of plug and play and, and utilize that. Anyway. So are you working in the enterprise space now or is that for the future after you really get more more time in the public safety curriculum? No, we're definitely working in the enterprise space as well. We primarily do enterprise training development and consulting for some of the enterprise drone services firms. So we've worked with Drone Deploy, we worked with you know, Uplift before they were acquired by Precision Hawk. We've worked with a lot of these companies, did some consulting for drone base, worked with a lot of these companies to help enable their pilots and enable their pilot networks to be able to complete those missions safely, legally, and effectively, just like we do in public safety. Sure. So in public safety, what are you finding drones to be the most effective for? What missions are they flying sure. and they're getting the most value out of? Sure. It? Lots of different missions, right? It really depends on kind of what the needs of the agency are. Law enforcement and fire tend to have different needs. Where we see lots and lots of value is uh, wherever a situation may be, or an incident commander may be information limited, right? So you roll up to a large structure fire, for instance, you can't see all the sides of the building, you start getting hoses to attack that fire, and you can't see where those hoses are going because you've got a large building, you've got a big column of fire to deal with. So simple as, as targeting resources, that's number one. Search and rescue has also been, been incredibly effective, and not necessarily wide area search and rescue either. You know, some of the original successes that the agencies that we worked with had where you've got a missing kid or you've got a missing uh, elderly person with Alzheimer's and it's the middle of the night in the middle of winter in Chicago, you've got a limited amount of time to find these people. So, you know, equipped with some of the thermal imagers that are available on the drones today, they were able to get out there and, you know, effectively find those people, provide guidance to ground assets to get in there and get those people some help uh, in a significantly more expedient way than we would have even been able to do a couple of years ago. So much of your work is done kind of in the Midwest, right? Mm -hmm. But you do span the entirety of the United States. We do, yeah. Have you done work in Canada or, or international work at all, or do you primarily stay in the U.S.? So no international work. We primarily stay in the U.S., but we have partnered with some international companies before and, and have done some really interesting projects. One of the projects that comes to mind is we were the fourth ever company to get a waiver for overflight of people. So it was Google, CNN, you guys at FLIR, and then us. 
And when we did that, we uh, partnered with an aircraft company out of Switzerland. And the cool thing about that project was Switzerland has much, much more, I don't want to say lax, but more progressive aviation regulations than we do with regard to drones. So what we were able to do there is basically prove the use case in Switzerland. Say, hey, if this flies over people and is safe you know, in this country, it's not like physics is different from one continent to the other, so it should be able to work here. And the FAA actually bought that. They approved the waiver, they, they agreed with our test data, and we were able to start opening that market up. And, and we're seeing some other companies that are, that are employing that strategy as well, like Zipline is doing a lot of testing in, in, in Africa right now because they have a much easier methodology to do that there. Yeah, I think that just this industry is pushed by best practices. Right. And if you can learn best practices, like you're saying, you're able to do this elsewhere, and yeah. then you're able to show risk mitigation to right. the FAA, that's exactly. a, a good way to approach it. Exactly, we, we strongly believe in standardization. So speaking of best practices, when you go to public safety entities today, how do you navigate the do I part 107 or do I COA mm. question? So that, and that's a really good question. That depends on a lot of things. That depends on needs of the agency, and that depends on how much, how big the agency is, how much risk they're willing, or not risk, I should say, but how much paperwork they're willing to take on. Let's back up, and, and I'll frame this question this way. COA allows you a lot of operational flexibility, right? COA allows you to fly at night by default. It allows you to fly over people by default. It allows you to fly within TFRs. You can get a TFR clearance. It allows you to set up TFRs, where Part 107 does not allow you to do that from scratch. The challenge with COA is COA has some really stringent reporting requirements. You basically have to report to the FAA every single time you flew, where you flew, why you flew, when you flew it. And the biggest challenge that a lot of agencies that are finding with COA is there is a little phrase that says this authorization can only be used for governmental functions per 49 U.S.C. section 4125, which if you read that statute, and we've asked the FAA's general counsel's office about this, really only defines scope of a governmental function as an emergent purpose. So you can't do it for uh, public events. You can't do it for demonstrations to the public. It's difficult to get authorization to use COAs for training purposes. So what we really recommend is both, right? You get your Part 107 certificates, you train around Part 107, now your pilots can do the majority of their missions under 107. If you have an exigent need that goes beyond 107, you can do that with COA, right? COA provides you that coverage to you know, fly at night, fly over people and, and, and do the TFR stuff. And then one step beyond that, you can also get a special governmental issuance authorization on top of that to be able to do certain types of activities that even aren't approved in your COA. But those are case by case. We actually had an agency fly with the Secret Service inside a presidential TFR under an SGI, right? So it's not necessarily an either or. You know, the way that we look at it is like, what are the needs of your agency? And then which one of those tools do we utilize to meet the needs of your agency? What we tend to recommend is if you have both, you've got both tools in your toolbox, and then you can deploy those tools based on the mission you see in front of you. Gotcha. So currently, the, what do you see the setbacks for the drone industry in being used in public safety? Is mm. it, and that could be hardware, software, you know, it could be mm. policy related. Oh, a lot of things. <laughs> the, the, look, the industry is still very, very new. You know, arguably, the public safety drone industry, at least as we know it today, is really only three years old, right, since the emergence of Part 107. I think that there are two things that are limiting adoption, or I, I should say three things. The first is regulatory, and I won't beat the FAA up too much about this, but like part of the challenge is with waivers and with the COA is public safety agencies have to 
do an incredible amount of research, come up with an incredible amount of documentation, and almost have a, a degree in aviation law to be able to navigate some of this, right? And that's what our company tries to make, make easier. And we've made it, you know, through things like the Mabus program, we've made it quite a bit easier for public safety agencies to, to get on board with this technology. So what I'd like to see is an evolution of, of you know, the, the drone regulations toward the kind of equipage and rating standard that we've become used to in manned aviation where, let's say you want to fly beyond line of sight, certain type of equipment, certain type of training, go out and do it, right? That's number one. Number two is I think that there needs to be a consensus standard around training and airworthiness. And when I say a consensus standard, what I mean is like the fire service has NFPA, right? Mm -hmm. NFPA standardizes everything from how fire hydrant connectors are set up to how training is performed to how hazmat you know, equipment and hazmat suits protect you from chemicals. That's all completely standardized. The NFPA started with this, with NFPA 2400, but I think there are still some areas that are missing because what we get into is we see a lot of people with 107 certificates that may not have any operational training or may not have any practical training to be able to then take that aircraft and use that in a mission, and that becomes challenging. We recently had a mission with Mabus in the western portion of Illinois, and there was a responding agency that had an aircraft that was locked mode one. And the challenge is, if anybody's ever flown mode one, I've spent the majority of my career flying mode two. Mode one, your controls are essentially reversed, right? So when they responded, all of the other pilots that were operating on that team were all trained mode two. They couldn't fly that drone, right? Because the, the, even the controls aren't standardized. Imagine getting into like a manual transmission car, the clutch and the gas are in two different places, right? It, difficult to wrap your head around. So some standardization on equipment, airworthiness, how equipment should be set up, how reliable equipment should be is key. And I think one of the things that we would also like to see is I'd like to see more competition in the harbor space, right? And the reason being is because competition drives innovation. Like think about Apple and Samsung, right? If Apple and Samsung didn't have that rivalry, we wouldn't see the constant iterative advancements every year when you go to when you go to buy a new phone. And I think that's really key to push the industry forward is that is that so on the hardware front, what mm. aspects of the hardware do you feel need that push forward? What area of innovation is necessary? Sure. So, I mean, a couple different things. I think safety and reliability is a big one. A good example would be with the notice of proposed rulemaking that the FAA put out just a couple months ago. They're talking about consensus airworthiness standards for flying over people, which I think is fantastic. Because if you're a public safety agency, when you buy a drone, the drones that are available on the open market today, very, very minimal information about how they're maintained. Very few of them are ingress protected. The ones that are ingress protected are kind of ingress protected against rain, but can't really properly be decontaminated or can't fly in certain types of environments, right? So for these public safety missions, when an agency is going to be putting you know, a lot of money and a lot of time into having this response capability, you want to make sure that this response capability is able to perform you know, routinely, perfectly, every single time that it's flown. Like, I see that as key. And then also, you know, data management is another one. There have been a lot of questions about, especially with some of the more, you know, consumer and enterprise drones, about who has access to this data, where is it going. The, you know, the fire service is not as concerned about that. 
you know, I think some companies have taken great steps to mitigate some of those concerns, but that's still a very big concern in law enforcement because in the law enforcement side of the business, now you've got to take that data into a court of law and, and use that as, you know, indication of a crime or use that as evidence. And, and if you don't have a very consistent data custody chain, it's not very clear where that information came from, where that information went, if there was any changes to that information along the line, it can allow a defense attorney to poke a lot of holes in that, right? So uh, those are two areas that I would like to see. There are tons and tons and tons more, but really to support the whole drone ecosystem and to provide opportunity for this industry as a whole, I think we need to see more competition to drive innovation in those two areas and also in all the others. So as you look at the drone industry now, and I feel like you kind of dive yourself deep into looking mm. at different hardware companies, different mm. software companies, other companies that are doing yeah. you know, training or whatever, yeah. who, who in the industry do you look at and you say they're doing it right? Right, right. Depends, right? I think there, there's, there's two areas that I would touch on. I think the hardware companies that are doing it right are the hardware companies that are putting time into really documenting and standardizing the reliability of their equipment. Like I, there's, a, there's a parachute company that I've, that I've seen here. They do a perfect example of this, which is that they've taken their equipment, taken it to ASTM, they've had it independently tested, so that when you buy that piece of hardware, it comes with all the documentation that you need to prove to the FAA that it's safe to fly over people. So that's huge, because if you're a public safety agency, or if you're a, you know, an, an enterprise user or a consumer, you don't have the time or the resources to go out and do all of that testing and all of that documentation. So I think that's big, and I think that's pushing the industry in the right direction, because the challenge has been, at least at the beginning of the industry, drones were kind of perceived as consumer electronics. And the safety standards and reliability standards were developed with the mindset of consumer electronics. And that's fine if, it, if you have a, a phone or a tablet or a computer or anything like that. But if you've got a flying device that's going to be over potentially over people someday or that's going to be out tasked with saving lives, that is extremely important to make sure that that device is reliable and functions as it's designed to and can be maintained and those, those, are, those are very clear. And I think the second is that there are a lot of companies that are on the services side really investing in providing training, education, and standards to their pilots, right? Because the, the goal, and maybe not the goal, but the eventual future is we're going to see a lot, a lot of improved autonomy. You know, there are companies talking about taking the pilot entirely out of the loop. But it's going to be some time before that happens. And we need to make sure that our industry can grow sustainably in that time before that happens. And the companies that are out there that are doing, you know, the high-level enterprise services, you know, inspections of transmission and distribution lines, inspections of oil and gas, I mean, doing some of the, the, the AEC work, that are really putting the effort, putting the time, and putting the money into making sure that their pilots are not only trained to be safe, but trained to be effective, and also trained to be good stewards of the industry, I think that's huge, and I think that provides more opportunity for everybody. So when you think about your job and your place within the drone industry, what matters to you most? What are you really, you personally trying to accomplish? Where would you like to put your mark on all of this? So I would like to see drone technology proliferate to more people, proliferate to more industries, and become a totally common household technology, right? Just like, just like your smartphone was, right, 10, 15 years ago when that was, when that was brand new. 
I think that there are places that I worry that the drone industry is getting into a, into a trap the same way that the, the manned aviation industry was and still is, which is things are getting too complex. You know, regulations are holding some things back. Because of the way the hardware market is shaking out, there may only be one or two hardware players that are able to compete, and that's going to limit innovation. It's going to drive the cost of the technology way up, right? These are all challenges that we've kind of experienced in the manned aviation industry that have made, you know, parts of that industry really inaccessible to the average user or the average consumer. And I want to make sure that doesn't happen to the drone industry. And through doing that, you know, I think what drives me and what motivates me is making sure that this technology is accessible, is affordable, and can really be utilized to solve the problems that businesses and public safety agencies are having. It's fantastic. In every one of these podcasts, I do five fast questions. Sure. Ones you haven't seen, just quick answer. Okay. Just to get a, get a little flavor of you working off the cuff. Love um, it. All right, first question. What is the most important flight waiver for public safety drone pilots to obtain? Night ops. Okay. Night ops. 50% of the day is night, right? So 50% of a 24-hour period is night. And think about your average police department or fire department. When are you getting most of your calls? Two o'clock in the morning, right? Things tend to not go south at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. Sure. Okay. Should the FAA require a practical flight test as part of receiving a license? I certainly believe so. I'm not sure the FAA would have the resources to do that or to standardize that, but the scariest thing to me is that you can get a license without ever touching the controls of a drone. When I you know, got my pilot's license, I needed to prove that I could fly you know, an airplane without being a hazard. I think the same logic should extend to drone pilots. Okay. In five years, which industry will be using the most drones? Mmm, that's a good one. I think energy inspections. Energy inspections is big. There's an incredible amount of infrastructure that needs to be inspected. The traditional way of doing it is cost inefficient, can be hazardous. And as we transition to more renewable power, uh, this is going to be a key in, in, in promoting that sustainable future. Great. Waffles, pancakes, or French toast? Definitely waffles with bacon or chicken. Okay. <laughs> that's a good answer. Thank so, you. I'm, I'm a big fan of, like, the, the cheaper the waffle, like, the softer the waffle, the oh, better. definitely, definitely. So, like, for me, I, waffles are my pick as well. Oh, yeah. It's not like a gourmet waffle for me, yeah. personally. It's like 3 a.m. Waffle House waffles. Exactly. Yeah, you Give know me that all day about. long. Oh, all yeah. right, cool. Uh, all right, so with the Brendan Stewart iconic look, which is more important to you, hair or beard? Mmm, definitely beard, right? Because the hair is going away on its own. So one of these, <laughs> one of these days, you may see me with a shaved head. We'll see. Yeah, you ever been shaved? Sh- had a uh, shaved head? Not yet, not yet. Okay. But I think you know, a couple years that might that might end up being the direction. Perfect. So other than you shaving your head, what's the next big thing for the drone industry? Where are we going? <laughs> Where are we going? I'd like to see more proliferation of overflight of people and beyond line of sight. That's kind of the holy grail. And I think that you know, one of the ways that I would definitely like to see getting there is an equipage and rating based standard for drone pilots the same way that we have for man pilots. Perfect. Just some final thoughts. So if a public safety entity is trying to investigate drones, they don't have drones sure. yet, what should they be taking as their first step? Call us. <laughs> no. Okay. okay, shameless self-promotion aside, uh, I, I think, look, do your research. Find out you know, what agencies are in your geography that are 
being successful with drones, talk to them, figure out how they've been successful, look at standard setting organizations like the NFPA, look at organizations that have been successful with larger deployments like Mavis, and, and really understand what your investment is going to be, what the benefits of that investment are going to be, and then put a roadmap together of here's how I think we're going to get there, here's probably how much it's going to cost, here's going to be our goals, and make sure that you, you know, have somebody that's, that's really a champion that can track the progress of that program. Because the, the thing that, where I see a lot of agencies struggling, and a lot of agencies have struggled, is they get the Best Buy effect, right? They go out and buy a drone at Best Buy and go, oh, how do I use this, right? How do I implement this as a tool, right? When you're, when you're first doing that research, you know, figure out what your goal is, what other people have been successful with in achieving that goal, and then put a roadmap together of here's what we're going to implement, here's what has been successful in the past, and validate that, right? Because sometimes you need to pivot, sometimes technology changes, regula regulations change, and sometimes your, your, your conceptions of uh, the industry might not be right and be open to that. So you mentioned Mabus a few times. So what sure. I'm going to suggest is we'll put together some sort of download, some sort of document that explains what you guys did with Mabus, and Definitely. maybe others can look at that Definitely. and get inspired by that work you guys have put together in Illinois. I would, I would explain it. I would explain it here. I think it would be a long, long uh, time for me to explain it. But the simplest way I'll put it is: in Illinois, we don't have a state fire agency. So what Mavis does, it is a intergovernmental agency that Illinois considers to be a state agency, but it gathers all the resources of individual fire departments across the state to be able to leverage them together and deploy them together. So whether you're a city like Chicago or a rural fire protection district down in the middle of the state, you have access to the same high-quality resources, whether you can afford to buy them for your agency or not. You guys are doing great stuff for the industry, great stuff for public safety, so I appreciate you sitting down talking to me, and uh, we'll keep this thing moving. Randall, it's always a pleasure, my man. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Make sure to head to fleer.com slash delta for more episodes and downloads. Also, subscribe or follow to make sure to catch all the Fleer Delta content. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover, someone you'd like us to sit down with, or a way we can make this podcast even better, make sure to send us your thoughts to delta.podcast at fleer.com. Again, thanks for making Fleur Delta part of your connection with the drone industry.